This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, retired and former chief of the Army Reserve and commanding general of the United States Army Reserve. Lieutenant General Lucky retired this past year after 43 years of public service. And in his role of of chief of the Army Reserve um, and commanding general, he led a community-based force of more than 200,000 soldiers and civilians with a footprint that includes 50 states, five territories territories in more than 30 countries. Not not a small task. He was commissioned uh, in the Army after graduating um, from the University of Virginia in 1977. Uh, He was recalled to Baghdad with a long history of uh, patriotics and um, uh, uh, commendations in his service um, and serving overseas to include Baghdad. Um, He is also a lieutenant, the lieutenant general is also a litigation partner in the firm uh, Blanco. Tackberry and Matamoros, located in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Um, he has served in a variety of theaters and more than three back combat tours. His awards, badges, and decorations are just amazing. Um, Lieutenant General Lucky, it's an honor to have you on the show and uh, welcome. Ali, it's great to be here. Thanks for giving me a chance to speak with you and with all your listeners today. It's awesome. So- you know, the show is about leadership, so I, I, I have to ask you, can you describe your leadership style? <laughs> well, you have to ask. I think it's probably fair to ask other people um, my style. And uh, so I'll, I guess what I would say is I, I aspire uh, to, to continue to mature and develop as a leader. And, and I acknowledge that you said I've retired after 43 years of service, but I, I, I would tell you I'm uh, I've retired from the military, but I, I haven't retired from, from life, and I'm still trying to, to grow as a, as a strategic leader. Um, so I think my style has changed over the years. Um, I, I, I think, it, it, like most senior leaders, one's style has to mature and develop, um, to not, just, not just because the times change, but also because the challenges of leadership tend to, to, tend to, tend to change as you expand not only your responsibilities, but also uh, the folks with whom you're going to partner and build build alliances to achieve success for, in my case, the American people. So um, I aspire to what we call mission command, leadership style. Uh, I call it leading with love, but it's it's really about empowering your subordinate commanders, your sub, your, your your soldiers, your sailors, your airmen, your marines, um, the or, or in, in the case of the private sector, your your employees, whether they're your partners, associates, or whatever. But empowering others. Um, to be better at doing what they do best. And in many cases, they do it a lot better than, than the leader does because they have certain talents or you know, expertise that the leader doesn't have. But the leader's responsibility is to, is to, is to create uh, the team, to, 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 to articulate the vision, uh, to, to make sure the team understands its purpose, and to essentially imbue the entire organization, the entire team, with a commitment to self-service to something larger than themselves. And so that that takes, um, I think, sort of a different set of skills at different levels of command. But I think that it's uh, it, thematically it's something I've aspired to do for pretty much my entire life as a leader. 
Now, you, you said you approach depending on a different situation or, or maybe even audience. Um, can you tell us about a story where you had to alter your approach because of the situation? <laughs> yeah, so I give I can give you a lot, but I give you one that's probably uh, the most one of the most profound experiences for me in terms of having to develop and mature as a leader. I spent a year, as you as you told your listeners, I spent a year in Baghdad in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, doing uh, we call it security assistance. It was primarily for military sales and and a couple other things, things which candidly I knew very little about. Um, I, I literally received a call in my law firm in, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, from uh, a wonderful, um, gifted leader in the field, uh, Jim Dubik, Lieutenant General, who basically called me and asked me if I'd come to Baghdad to work for him. Uh, and I said, yeah, I will, but I don't know anything about what it is that you're asking me to do. And he said, well, that's part of why we want you. We want somebody who's got sort of a fresh set of eyes and sort of a different attitude. And and they, I think they liked the idea that I was a trial lawyer um, in my civilian life. But anyway, so I spent a year in, in, in Iraq doing really I mean, working with an awesome team. It was a joint force, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, uh, civilians, uh, just wonderful people. Uh, relatively small team. Uh, team worked very, very well together, accomplished a lot of cool stuff. But I... What I didn't realize was um, the amount of sort of, um, I won't say autonomy because I was well, well supervised by good people, thank God, but, um, but really the amount of authority that I had as a one-star uh, general in, in combat in, in Iraq. And so I was asked by uh, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Admiral Mike Mullen, another absolutely incredible leader, to come back and uh, serve with him on this, the joint staff in Washington. So I left uh, I, I left Baghdad as a one star and came back to Washington, D.C. and was promoted to got a second star, and served on the joint staff. And it took me, I mean, believe it or not, it took me about a month to, to realize that the Pentagon was a completely different operating environment than anything I'd been exposed to before in my either military or civilian career. And I had to adjust my expectations. I had to adjust my style. Um, I had to build new relationships. Uh, I need, needed to understand the building, as, as we say in the Pentagon, to be effective. And one, I'll just give you one vignette. You know, I, I, uh, I had been back in the joint staff for about three weeks. I asked one of my uh, one of my officers on my team, "Hey, have we heard back from so and so?" And and they said, "No." I sent you know, I said I sent them an email, you know, but I hadn't heard back. I said, "Well, don't send them another email. You know, call them up or go see them." And uh, he said, "Well, sir, you know, I think we should give them a couple of days to respond." And I'm like. Are you kidding me? I mean, we're here to make stuff happen. And he said, yes, sir, but this, the Pentagon, sometimes you want to just sort of slow down a little bit um, because, you know, this is the different form of combat and you don't want to be overly aggressive and overly assertive and make enemies that you don't know you made, which was great advice. And so I, I, I think I had to sort of throttle it back. Um, in terms of my my own inclination to try to get things done and to be pretty assertive about certain things, um, I don't think I've just I don't think I've ever knowingly been dismissive of other people or their interests or their needs. But I do think sometimes I tended to have a sense of urgency about getting things done uh, that may have given uh, other folks the impression that I was not you know overly concerned about 
their needs um, as you know as leaders of their uh, constituency or their tribe. So I I had to develop a a much more I would say collaborative attitude and style uh, to be effective as a as a leader as a staff officer in the Pentagon. And I'm not saying I did a fantastic job at doing it, but it was a it was a really really powerful teaching point for me to develop as a leader and understand it was operating in a different environment. And I've said this many times to many folks, but when I went on to be the chief of staff at NORAD, U.S. Northern Command, uh, a, a staff of just a fantastic amalgamation of about 1,600 uh, civilians and military personnel, most mostly civilian personnel, um, I've always said it was my time on the joint staff that, that saved me as a leader um, at, at, at a combatant command because I had never been involved in running or being responsible for a staff of primarily uh, t- you know, talented civilian personnel. And my, my experience in the Pentagon really helped me sort of transition from my style and attitude as a as leader in combat to a, uh, to a leader, in many cases, a peer leader as a chief of staff at a combatant command out in Colorado. So I, I would just give that as sort of a, you know, a three-year transition from combat to chief of staff at North Northcom with, the, with my transition in the Pentagon really being helpful in helping me develop uh, and, and mature as a leader. Lieutenant General Lucky, you have been in public sector, uh, public service, I'm sorry, over the course of the last 43 years. Um, pretty much your entire career. Um, what inspired you to go to public service? And um, do you also believe that it should be compulsory to our, you know, there's many countries that require um, our young and when they're 18 or, or 21 to actually, um, you know, serve? So uh, great question. Um, so first of all, my, you know, my entry into what you, you're, you call it public service, which I appreciate. I mean, it's, it's very gracious. Uh, I uh, was, I would say happenstance. Uh, you know, I was, I was at the University of Virginia. Um, I had hair down to my shoulders. This was in, in night. This is the fall of 1973. I just graduated from uh, high school in New Hampshire and was living in, in a, you know, the, the grounds at the University of Virginia and absolutely loved it and had no interest whatsoever in joining ROTC or the military or anything. I, my grandfather had served in the First World War and it, it was a, he, he, he made corporal twice and got busted back to PFC for fighting, but he ended up getting his silver star. So I don't know, I don't know what that means about, about, uh, about uh, what it takes to, 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 to do well. In, in in the army, but he he, uh, he he inspired my dad, who served in the Second World War, who was a non commissioned officer, who served in China, and so I had two you know two you know a dad and a grandfather, both of whom I respected and looked up to, who had served in the military. So I wasn't um, afraid of it, or or you know it wasn't like I hadn't heard about hadn't heard army stories most of my life, even though neither one of them had served for more than three or four years. They both had tremendous experience with the army, but I was recruited into the into ROTC by a buddy of mine, uh, a, a classmate at the, at the University of Virginia, uh, who was an ROTC scholarship student and who I saw one day coming out of the dorm in a uniform and he had a, he, his hair was short and I, and I, his name was Carl Schott, a wonderful human being. And, and uh, I said, Schott, is that you? And he said, yeah. I said, well, what's up with your hair? He said, it's a wig. I'm like, what? He said, yeah, yeah. So he'd taken his long hair and he put it up under, under, in, into the wig so he could go to Army ROTC. 
he was a four-year Army ROTC scholarship, um, and he encouraged me. He said, "Hey, you don't have to cut your hair. This is it was right after Vietnam. The, the 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 ROTC department had been decimated because a lot of kids had been in ROTC to postpone being having to serve uh, in the military until they could get a commission. And when when the no when the draft was no longer uh, being no one's being called up the draft." To, for the draft, um, the, dec- the ROTC was decimated. So they'd sort of take, if you could fog a mirror, you know, I could, you could get into ROTC. So that's why I got in. And I just started by taking one class and then it ended up being a couple of classes. And then my, my dad passed when, between right at the beginning of my second year at the University of Virginia. Um, so the, the Army and ROTC sort of became my family. And so it just went from happenstance and, you know, a, a buddy of mine on, on my hall at, uh, at Emmett dorm at University of Virginia into, into RTC. And, and then I sort of took off and I, it, for me, making the decision to stay for a third year to get a regular army commission, which is just a different form of uh, commission uh, to make the decision to get a, have a three-year obligation as opposed to a two-year obligation was a huge uh, huge, you know, it's almost existential challenge for me to make that call. And I got some help from senior leader at ROTC who said, Hey, no, you, you take, you take a regular army commission in the infantry and you're going to spend three years in the army and it's going to work out fine. And then you can do whatever you want to do with your life. And so I just sort of backed into it. And I look back at that all the time and think that's amazing. You know, I had this massive struggle as a, you know, 22 year old as to whether I was going to sign up for a third year. And then 43 years later was, I mean, literally forced out of the army because uh, I was the oldest general and uh, I think the oldest Green Beret on active duty. But um, so I, it, it sort of chose me, uh, you know, Doc Hammarskjöld said once, you know, don't, don't cry. You know, you didn't choose the way the way it chose you. So I think it, the way it just sort of chose me uh, to, to join the U S military um, as the public service, I would say there's a, um, so, you know, so this takes us to your question about compulsory service. I, I here's my view of it. I, the, the more I served, the more I see in America in terms of disaggregation, atomization, uh, folks who are at each other's throats over things that I find really, um, really disappointing. Um, I, I'm struck by this, this friction between, you know, or this nuance between being a country and being a nation. And I think part of nationhood is, is everybody feeling that they have a stake in sort of some common things, some common good. And I, my, my sense of it is that if we did have some sort of um, compulsory or something close to compulsory um, service, or even the risk of, of anybody being potentially called to serve, uh, that brought people together with a some common uh, experience or a sense of commonly held risk that w- that existed regardless of your wealth or your you know, station in life. Um, I I think that I think that tends to break down barriers, create bridges, and bring a sense of community um, to, cult- to to cultures. And I think that's something that while I. I know most of my friends in the U.S. military, my, you know, my colleagues would say it'd be a terrible thing for the military because we had we have such a better army or navy or air force, or marine corps with no compulsory service and all fully professional. I would submit that the American people don't really uh, they love their military, but they may not understand it that well. And I do question whether or not we would have continued to have been involved in very very long protracted wars um, if we'd had if we had a draft. 
And so I just think that's something worth having a national conversation about. I'm speaking with Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, retired and former Chief of Army Reserve and Commanding General of the United States Army Reserve. After the break, we'll discuss about leading in the pandemic and leading more a little bit about leading with love. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Lieutenant Charles Lucky, retired and former Chief Army Reserve and Commanding General of the United States Army Reserve. General Lucky, what a challenging time for all of us with the pandemic, the insurrection, weather, social justice. It's just been, let's face it, playing, playing craziness from my perspective. This is impacting everyone across the world. People are looking for clarity, for communications, and to find courage, I think, at least from my perspective, from our leadership, that it's going to be okay. Um, what does leadership from your perspective look like in a crisis, especially in times like today? What qualities do you really think is needed? So uh, that's a great question. I, I, and I, this, I'm, I'm not going to prioritize these because they're, I think they all matter and there's others that I could probably talk about as well. I think being steady uh, being calm, you know, I, I may talk a little bit later about spiritual fitness and it has nothing to do with religion. It has a lot to do with um, with remaining calm. But I think um, I think being steady, uh, being consistent, being positive, uh, being open in terms of your own thoughts and curiosity on constantly assessing the situation, uh, messaging to your to your team, to your to your subordinates, uh, what it is you're doing and why you need to do it. Uh, finding common ground in places where there's acrimony. I think those are, these are key, you know, qualities that leaders need to have. I think leaders should seek opportunities in times of crisis because I think, you know, one of the things we are taught from a military perspective is, you know, crisis is opportunity, right? So to the extent that we're able to, even though there's a crisis, uh, find the good or find ways to to mitigate the impacts and to remain positive and continue to connect and communicate. I think those are really critical qualities for, for leadership. Now, General Lucky, in, in doing research for this interview, I watched a, a video where you talked about leading with love, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier in the video, in interview. So tell me, what does that mean, and why is it so important? So to me, leading with love is actually – uh, pretty straightforward. It, it, it it's really about um, it, essentially imbuing the team with two things: one, a a, a mission and a, a sense of purpose about what it's doing that is bigger than you as the leader and they as the team are. So the mission is is the driver for what you are doing together. And then the second component is the team. It's it's the it's the us together doing this. And I think the, and the reason I use the word love is because I think love is the best way to describe what needs to be in the leader's heart for this to work effectively, because the team needs to believe that the leader is more committed to accomplishing the mission and to taking care of the team than the leader is committed to him or herself. And so to me, you know, love is about being selfless. And that's why I talk when I talk about humility and how important humility is. I'm not talking about modesty, um, but I'm talking about humility. You know, thinking about oneself less, thinking about others more. You know, so you're not thinking less of yourself. You're just thinking of yourself less. So I, I think for me, leading in love is just it, leading with love is just a is a way to sort of catch this notion of selfless service that links 
the team and the mission with 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 the effects that it, it is supposed to achieve for the and, 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 you know in the case of the U.S. military, the, the people of the United States. There's so many articles right now out there about empathetic leadership. It sounds, uh, you know, a little bit, um, you, you know, leading with love is at least a cousin of empathetic uh, leadership. People are tired and there's there's a big talk about the great resignation. I think average resignation ra- uh, rates on, on some yeah. corporations right now yeah. is yeah. is um, leading up above 30 percent. How do you lead with empathy and leading with love? I mean, in, in the role of being a commanding general of the Army Reserve, let's face it, you had to deal with a lot of different communities. You had, you know, families. You had people who also had other careers. You had to deal with, you know, uh, those corporations and, and getting their support. So, you know, can, can you talk about that? I mean, especially in, in this kind of climate? Yeah, so I think, I mean, so empathetic leadership, as I understand it, is really uh, focusing on the leader sort of stepping into the, the shoes, the moccasins of of the the the, the, lead, the employee um, and understanding their, or maybe not the employee, but other other potential mission partners. So it, so it's it's about understanding and being curious about other folks and really caring, genuinely caring about their lives and their needs. And I, so I. I agree that it's an important component of effective leadership to understand uh, the, w- with whom you're dealing, be it a subordinate or being it a you know potential um, ally or a partner, um, or you know in some cases just pr- to preclude them from be from becoming an enemy, you know, or or an adversary um, when it comes to partnerships. But I would nuance it a little bit and say I think leading with love is a little different in, in that it really, in, in my mind is about also making sure that everybody who's working towards the common goal understands that the what they're what they're driving at the their purpose is more important than any one of them and i think that's um so so it's not that it de-emphasizes the individual but it does bond in my view it bonds the team with this notion that at the end of the day what we're about is more important than any any single one of us. And I think that's, I think that's the nuance I would, I would hit there. So as the commanding general of the uh, army reserve, tell us what a day in the life of, of a commanding general uh, in that role is. Wow. Um, so one of the re- really cool things is, you know, I, I did for four years and I, I would say almost no two days were alike um, moving uh, from the, t- what I would say the tactical to the strategic and through the operational uh, back and forth all the time. Um, a lot of travel, a lot of a lot of uh, opportunities to meet with a lot of soldiers, with their families, um, with with mission partners around the world. Uh, so you know, fast paced. Um, a, a lot of uh, you know, small small travel team, but a a lot of different things going on in the world, and a lot of different opportunities to engage. One of the things I would tell folks uh, when I'd show up. With a, to meet soldiers someplace or whatever, I'd say, you know, there's in any given day, there's like a hundred things that people think I should be doing. And part of my job is to figure out, okay, in the time that I have this 24 hour period, where should I be to best to be able to achieve the effect that I'm expected to achieve for the American people? And sometimes that, you know, that meant being missing a meeting in the Pentagon and sending somebody else because I had someplace else I thought was more important. It could be something as, you know, as small as a small team in Erbil, you know, in Iraq or at, uh, you know, or in, or in, in Afghanistan. Um, so it was co- constantly 
uh, trying to assess where should I be? How long can I afford to stay in this place? When do I need to move again? And we found ourselves essentially running at a pretty fast pace for four years. And I, I, I won't say that there aren't days when I'm glad that I'm not operating at that velocity, uh, but there are also days when I, I miss the opportunity to engage with that many uh, great souls around the world. What accomplishments, you, you have had so many, but is there one that comes to mind that you're most proud of that you were able to lead your team to accomplish during your career? I think, so over the span of a career, I don't I, I I'm probably going to miss a lot of different moments, but let me let me just tell you one of the things I think was really cool was at we spent four years in the Army Reserve working on this thing. It was a concept called RFX, Ready Force X, and the idea was to be able to inside the Army Reserve let it sort of very quickly, rapidly reinvent itself to be able to deploy large amounts of combat power to other parts of the world in the event of a major war. And that was a huge cultural uh, challenge for, for a lot of soldiers and a lot of my senior leaders even to, to understand why we had to do it and what we needed to do to be able to affect it. But, but the cool part of it was uh, because of the intellectual agility that that concept basically was driving into every facet of the Army Reserve, when COVID hit, uh, the Army Reserve, which which has about 50% of the medical capability of the entire Army, the Army Reserve was able to, inside itself, reorganize itself, retask purpose, um, senior medical professionals in the span of two and a half weeks uh, to deploy in these urban augmentation medical task force teams into urban areas around the United States and help primarily civilian, you know, commercial hospital staffs um, deal with the onslaught of the of the of the virus in the in the spring of twenty. So I, uh, you know, I, so I'm proud of many many things that the Army Reserve did and and the and the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that I led and other organizations did. But I think one of the really cool things for me as a leader was to see an operational concept that you know I've been thinking about you know the Russians or the Chinese or some other place where we might have to go um, at scale. And it ended up being, as I said to the soldiers, you know, this was not the enemy we anticipated. This is not the place we would th we thought we would fight, but it's the fight we're in. And we deployed a significant amount of medical, medical capability. And to do that out of the reserve component in less than three weeks is just, I mean, that's the speed of light uh, for us. And so I'm very proud of the team for producing that capability for America. I'm speaking with Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, retired former chief of the Army Reserve and commanding general of the United States Army Reserve. Coming up next, we'll talk about lessons learned climbing mountains. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend on Government. On Federal News Network, I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking with Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, retired and former chief of the Army Reserve and commanding general of the United States Army Reserve. Um, you know, General Lucky, leadership is a major focus in training for military officers. What lessons as a military leader do you think would be helpful for all leaders? I mean, you talked about intellectual agility before, and, and let's face it, as an Army Reserve commander, you had to face from pretty different types of crises over the span of your um, command. Can you address that? So I think um, some of what we've already talked about. I mean, I think when I think about sort of uh, core skills that I think probably have 
pretty ready, readily could be pretty readily applied uh, to the private sector or to industry. Um, I think that in many cases, I think pretty intuitive. I mean, just the whole notion of teamwork, uh, talking about working together as a team to achieve goals, um, being able to to articulate the purpose, explain to your to your team the why of what we're doing, uh, remaining, you know, what I call pragmatically enthusiastic. So you're not a you're not just being enthusiastic to be enthusiastic. You're being pragmatically enthusiastic because you sincerely uh, are upbeat and forward focused, future focused on where, where we're going and why why we need to do what we need to do to get there. Um, I, I think authenticity, you know, if I had to pick a couple of words that don't always necessarily get snapped right into leadership, I would say authentic and curious are two, two that I'm particularly sort of seized with. Uh, they're, they're sort of cousins in a way, but I think uh, being perceived as being present in the moment with your with your subordinates or with or with somebody with whom you're just you know you you may even be disagreeing with so they may not even be your subordinates they may just be a peer um but but remaining uh present and open and curious and authentic with in all of your dealings as best you can uh i think it's really really key to effectively leading um in any number of environments because my view of leadership is it's a very humanocentric thing. Uh, what I mean by that is, yeah, technology is technology, and technology, you know, it works until it doesn't, and all that jazz. But I think leadership fundamentally is about human interaction, and I think if you if you think about those things that we see and appreciate in each other as human beings, um, and then are able to sort of bring that to the forefront in your in your in, in your responsibilities as a leader at any echelon, um, I think it makes a huge difference in terms of how you can build trust. And I think trust is key to, to achieving effects. You brought up the term curious. Does that mean that you believe that you need to be a continuous learner? Yes, absolutely. And you need, you need to, I think we all need to remain open-minded and we all need to understand, in my opinion, you know, uh, you know, we, as I like to say, and I stole this from somebody, you know, you're not your beliefs. You know, you may be your values, but you're not your beliefs. Your beliefs are things that could and I would argue should change over time as as you learn new things, as as you know, the facts change, uh, the situation changes. There are new developments. There's, a, you know, the truth is it moves on because new things have happened. There's a cool book called the scout mindset uh, by um, Julie Gallup. And it basically, she just talks about keeping an open mind and looking at every situation as sort of a possibility that you may have gotten something wrong on the map. And so you just need to update the map. And I, so I think that's, I think curiosity really helps you continue to update your map as you assess the world. And I think if you have a better understanding of what's happening and what could happen, then you're, you are almost surely going to have the opportunity to be a more effective leader. What do you think will be the biggest challenge for government executives, for leaders in the aftermath of, of the pandemic and the craziness we're currently living through? <laughs> crazy. <laughs> well, <laughs> the term craziness is pretty loaded, so I'll, I guess I'll just go with it. Um, I, you know, I think uh, I don't have any better sense of, of you know, sort of post-pandemic new normal uh, than anybody else. Uh, you know, I think we're all sort of 
wondering when we're going to get to a new normal. And so I don't have any real, I don't, I, again, I don't think I have the market cornered on being uh, better about anticipating what the implications might be. I do think one thing that does concern me about, I'll just call it the new normal, uh, which is sort of how we've adjusted many of our practices and meetings and, you know, our, our communications with each other as professionals. One of the things that concerns me a little bit about sort of disaggregating uh, folks so that they can work more um, in the virtual environment is I'm, I'm concerned about building and sustaining what I would call, and I saw this from Stephen Covey, but, you know, speed of trust relationships, because I think, as I said, I think so much of, of our ability to really establish uh, functional long-term relationships of trust is, is predicated on human interaction. So I am concerned about whether or not uh, little things like the, the amount of folks that aren't even, you know, don't come to work. Uh, and, and are not expected to come to work and have been told not to come to work and work from home. I'm, I'm just concerned about there, there may be some market forces that sort of be, drive that to become a new normal. And I understand that, but I, I'm concerned about how those relationships between human beings may suffer as a result of not having more, uh, just a nuanced human interaction on a, on a regular basis. So I'm concerned about that. As for the other craziness, you have to tell me what that was. Well, let, let, well, let me about. ask you, uh, yeah. let me ask a more direct, direct question about this. Yeah. And maybe this is a kind of a loaded question, but let's face it. January 6th was not something that I think most of the people in this country saw coming. And, you know, you, you talked about the connection and making the human connection and, and how, you, you know, by doing that, you have a better understanding of where people are coming from. From my perspective, when you have something this shocking or this polarized, um, it's because they don't understand each other. And and I'm, I'm just wondering if if some of what you're talking about is where you're leading this is if, if we came together more as humans and understood each other, maybe some of the events like January 6th may have not happened. Yeah, so... Um... That's a great question, and uh, I know we're I know we're short on time. I just want to tell you, on that morning, I was driving from uh, North Carolina up to Connecticut to meet meet my brother. My mom was at that point we didn't know it, but she was about four days away from passing. She was in hospice in Connecticut, and I was on my way up, and and uh, I turned around. Uh, I was talking to Julie, my wife, on the phone. She called me and said, "You you're not going to believe what's happening in Washington right now." And so I turned around and came home just because I. I was concerned about her. I was concerned about what else was happening in America. And, was, and I heard rumors or you know, reports of state houses being uh, surrounded and pre- protesters in a number of different states. And I thought this was just this was such an unbelievably unprecedented thing to happen in my own country. Um, you know, and, and, and I'm, you know, this may sound loaded, but I'll just tell you, I'm seeing the Confederate flag. In the in the Capitol building of the United States of America, are you kidding me? Um, so I just, um, you know, with windows smashed in and people crushed and and all that, and so it's just it was horrific. And so, yeah, we we have to. I just think as a nation, we have got to work hard at making sure stuff like that doesn't ever happen again. And we need to understand how it could possibly have happened. We need to make sure it never happens again. And we also need to understand, and this is key for me, we also need to understand that there are foreign actors who, I'll just put it this way, they love this sort of thing. They love to see Americans uh, going at each other. 
Um, I would, uh, my, my own personal view of it is that many of, there are foreign actors that were involved in some, in some aspects of this potentially. Um, and I could be, I could be dead wrong about that. I don't know any more than anybody else. I do know this. I know that there are potential foreign adversaries that absolutely relish opportunities to create mischief in America. And the 6th of January went way beyond mischief. And so I, you're absolutely right. I think I, I refer to this as the age of epistemic warfare where we're literally having discussions about facts that I think is, are, it's just, it astonishes me. But I think part of what, you, what you're getting at in your question is, yes, we have got to be able to better understand and appreciate the perspectives of other people so we can talk to each other as civilized Americans who, in most cases, want basically the same stuff for our families, for our friends, for our children, and for the future. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking to Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, retired former chief of the Army Reserve and commanding general of the United States Army Reserve. Next, we'll follow up and find out from the general about climbing mountains and his advice to the next generation of leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking with Lieutenant Charles Lucky, a retired and former Chief of Army Reserve and Commanding General of the United States Army Reserve. Uh, General, in doing research of our conversation today, I, I read about you climbing mountains on your time off. I don't even know how you have time off with everything you do, but that takes determination and dedication to climb. Um, and you've accomplished some seriously high heights. Tell us about the experience. And besides what you're getting, the great exercise, what drives you to, to choose that? So, well, a couple, a couple of things, just <laughs> truth and truth and advertising. So um, real mountaineers would say I'm not a mountain climber. They'd say I'm a hiker. But um, I, I would tell you, the, the last time I had was uh, Mount Katahdin with my daughter, Lissa, who uh, lives up in Maine. And that was a climb. I mean, when, when you have to wear leather gloves, have gloves on your hands so your hands don't get shredded on the rocks, I count that as a climb. So uh, and as I told her, this is not a trail. This is a route. And uh, it, but anyway, so uh, to me, the mountains are basically uh, emblematic of of nature, wilderness. And it's kind of cool when you climb Katahdin, which is in northern Maine. Um, you head head up this trail, and after a little bit, there's a sign that says you're entering the, the the wildest part of the state of Maine. And there's some rules there about you know what you should and shouldn't do, and things you need to have in terms of equipment and all this other jazz. Anyway, so to me, it's really about um, it's about maintaining a relationship with the natural world. And the wilderness, for me, is a very very powerful place in which to do that. Obviously, and and the key for me, as it pertains to the wilderness, as it pertains to the natural world, is it really, if you talk about a driver for humility, and, and we're, we're, so we're hiking up Katahdin, and it, it took us three days, we were halfway up, we spent a night at this lean-to, and the summit of the next day, and came out back down. But as we're heading up the mountain, these two uh, women were coming down, and they were, I would say, a little older than I am and in great physical shape and very, very energetic and athletic. And, and they had gone all the way up and come back on the same day, which I found just you know phenomenal. But the thing they talked to me about, cause we, you know, you're, you're on a trail. There aren't that many people. You're, you know, this is in October in Northern Maine. Um, the thing they talked to me about was humility. And, and, and then I ran into somebody else who told, who said, you know, he had not been able to summit 
And he talked about how he had to deal with the fact that he was aging and this was the mountain was was humbling to him. And so I started really thinking about it is it's it, because it's it's so big, it's so powerful. And it's not not Katahdin per se, although it is. It's 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 the elements. It's it's the wilderness. It's the unknown. It's the lack of technology's ability to to help you to save you. Um, you know, the, in the couple of days we were up there, there were several uh, helicopters that had, had to fly in to pull people off the mountain, sort of thing. So to me, it really drives humility and it and it drives a, a deep appreciation for what I call magnificent insignificance, which is. Yes, you know, our lives matter to us and the people who love us, and the people we care about very, very much. But in the fullness of time, in the grand scheme of things, um, you know, the, the, the wilderness reminds us that, you know, it doesn't really care about us. And, and my view is, well, so we damn sure need to care about it because um, it's really good for us as humans. So I think it can get kind of self-absorbed. I think the wilderness really helps uh, keep us keep us humble. And so that's that's why the wilderness always has and always will, uh, I think, comfort me and encourage me to to stay you know, connected with forces larger than than myself. So, General, what's next for you? I, I heard you're writing a book. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I think I think it was William Faulkner said, don't be a writer, just be writing. So I'm just writing. Um, and if, if it ever gets published, then maybe I'm a writer. But uh, no, I, I am. I'm working on a book that's really trying to connect some of the things we've talked about today, which is authentic leadership and the for me the wilderness. And there's other ways to get to the wilderness. So for me, wilderness is sort of a metaphor for for something a little bit more powerful. But um, in terms of spirituality, but it but it's really about those. Um, th- those aspects of leadership that have encouraged me or inspired me as a leader and, and then trying to tap into, okay, so how do, how do we leverage what we've learned to help America deal with, again, what I refer to as epistemic warfare, which is um, this whole notion of, you know, well, I have my truths and you have your truths and I have my facts and you have your facts and these are non-facts or, you know, all this fake news stuff. And so I think, there's a lot of opportunity out there for leaders to really help folks see things a little bit differently. And so I'm really trying to work on my own thoughts on that uh, with a view towards, you know, hopefully, you know, moving the needle a little bit on the conversation in America. I call it nudging the universe, but I just, you know, it's part of what at this point in my life, I would like to be able to give to, 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 you know, to whoever, whoever wants to read. Sounds like you have a title to the book, Nudging the Universe. Um, do you be- obviously you believe leadership affects culture. Um, you know, as a leader and commander, you you may you you definitely had to lead through some care- craziness and hurrying things. And it it sounds like it's those lessons learned. Do, do you do you feel that way that leadership affects culture? Absolutely. I I I, I and the, and the more I uh, the, you know the longer I live and the more I study and the more I uh, talk to folks and experience life on planet Earth. The more I'm convinced that leadership is an absolutely fundamental component to to driving cultural change and and to impacting culture. Um, it's hard work and it takes energy and relentless enthusiasm and resilience and commitment. Again, I think to something larger than the self. I, I fundamentally I, be, I believe that. 
people trust folks who they perceive as caring more about them or about uh, you know the mission than they care about themselves. And I know I said that earlier, but I think that's fundamentally how one of the keys to driving cultural change is to sort of take take the the me out of the out of the equation. Your career and success you've had is just truly inspirational. Uh, any final pearls of wisdom for the next generation that is about to graduate? Uh, you know, our future leaders. So I'll give you I'll give you one word and I'll break it into three pieces um, because I talk, and this is this is something I've talked to soldiers about for years. The word I'd give you is fitness. Um, and then and, and then I, I break it down into sort of three components, intellectual, spiritual and physical and intellectual fitness to me is something we you and I've been talking about today. It's, you know, it's about reading, listening, thinking critically, dis- disagreeing civilly. You know, when you dissent, but don't, but don't, don't make it ad hominem. Don't attack other people. You can attack or, or disagree with their ideas and disagree civilly. Uh, you know, remain open-minded. We talked about that. Update your map. You know, you're not what you believe. You may be what, you may be your values, uh, and your values certainly become your character. But you know, but you're different than your beliefs. So be willing to don't get too rigid about uh, what you believe today because it may change tomorrow for a lot of reasons, and a lot of them are valid. Uh, I talked about spiritual. Fitness, and, and, I, and I encourage leaders to talk about it. Um, a lot of leaders are afraid to talk about spiritual fitness because they think it's going to sort of, you know, get get into religion and and telling people what they should believe. I'm really, really hard over on that. Saying, hey, don't ever tell anybody what to believe. You know, they're they if you're a leader in the U.S. military, you know, respect their right to believe whatever it is that you know that they need to believe to, to work for them from a, from a religious perspective. But spiritually, encourage you know always encourage and I would encourage young folks you know get grounded and stay grounded, you know, um, you know learn uh, sort of you know sense your connection with uh, with forces larger than yourself. And if you can tap into and feel a part of something that is transcendent, then then what that does ultimately is it gives you a level of calmness uh, when. You know, in the words of Kipling, everyone around you is losing their head and blaming it on you. Uh, that that's important, and I think spirituality, which is again why I touched on the wilderness earlier, uh, really can help with that grounding and that sense of inner peace. Um, and then, and then the the last one is physical fitness. Um, it's it is it is incredibly important. So you know, if I could tell youngsters, uh, as anybody you know under the age of sixty five, I guess, but you know. I mean, you know, work out, you know, it helps with stamina, it helps manage stress, it's, it's, it's good for you, um, you know, sleep, get good sleep, um, you know, eat right. I mean, those things all sound sort of hackneyed and trite, but I mean, it, they, they matter. And what I would tell soldiers is, you know, I, if you exercise every day or pretty much every day and you eat relatively well and you, and you, and you get good sleep, I can't tell you you're going to live any longer. But I damn sure can promise you you'll live better. And I think that um, those three aspects of fitness are things that I think regardless of what the future has um, in store for us, uh, we'll put them in a, in, a, in a good place in terms of their ability to have the resilience, the stamina and the energy to, to excel in, in, the, in the territory ahead. 
You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Lieutenant General Lucky. First, I want to thank you for your bravery, your dedication, and your 43 years of public service. It's just simply amazing. Lieutenant General, I also want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some seriously valuable advice. It's been an absolute honor to, to be here with you today. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you and with all your listeners, and I, I wish all of you the very best. Thank you, sir. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Podcast One.